The Live Richly podcast is sponsored by Keystone Wealth Partners. For a complimentary retirement map review, visit keystonewealthpartners.com slash map. Welcome to Live Richly, a show where life meets money. Join John Hagenson as he shares practical insights to help you make better financial moves. John is a certified financial planner, holds a master's degree in financial services, and a professional certification from Stanford University. He is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. Welcome to Live Richly, where my goal is to meet you at the intersection of some of life's most important places so that together we can make progress. Being the father to seven children is accompanied by the inevitable realization that my days will be filled with countless risks. Luna is just exiting the newborn stage as she just turned five months. But when they're itty bitty, you can't have any blankets in their bed. They sleep on their back. We even bought that little owlet thing, the sock that goes over their foot to determine the depth of their sleep quality and their breathing. And we end up taking it back. Wouldn't connect to Brittany's iPhone. But when you have a baby, there's all sorts of risks. With Aria, our two-year-old, she comes with all sorts of different risks. Anytime we're around water, she doesn't know how to swim yet. She goes to the neighborhood playgrounds. She hangs on them like she thinks she's in training for the U.S. women's gymnastics team. And you're kind of standing below just saying, oh man, if she slips, this is a long fall. This is not going to be good. Jude almost got hit by a car. We tell him, look left, look right, look left. Well, he got super excited that all of his friends were over the park and just went sprinting across. He almost got hit right in our neighborhood in front of Brittany. And so part of life is managing risks. And you don't need to be Ben Stiller in Along Came Polly where you're jumping over every grate because you know you have a one in 10 million chance of the grate breaking. You don't need to live in fear. But when it comes to life and regarding our personal finances, known risks that can be avoided easily or at least minimized should be considered because the effects of not considering them can result in unrecoverable outcomes. If Jude gets hit by that car, our life's never the same. If you're like one of our clients who in 2005 retired as an executive from Bank of America, was told to diversify out of her Bank of America stock by multiple advisors, she thought to herself, why would I? Largest bank in the country, amazing dividend history. I'm in retirement now. I like the income. This bank's not going anywhere. 2008, 2009, great financial crisis happened. She lost 95% of all of her portfolio. That was an easy risk to avoid. That's why we try to grab Jude's hand when we walk across the road. That's why you turn a monitor on and have it by your bed when you transition an infant to their own nursery. I mean, you try to be smart. And one of the largest avoidable, knowable risks that investors are rarely compensated proportionally for is individual stock risk. I ran into someone outside of our kid's school and they were talking about how volatile the market was. And of course, when they know that I'm in wealth management, people want to talk the markets, investing. And I get two questions most often. They're both terrible questions. Number one, which stock should I buy? And number two, what do you think is going to happen with the market? It's like, if I knew this information, I would have 80 houses around the world. I certainly wouldn't tell anyone else because that would be great information to know and keep for myself. And it would also require me to somehow be able to predict how almost 8 billion people on the planet are going to behave. And there's such great irony. I mean, the reason they were bringing this up is the markets have been volatile. And when the markets are good, Everyone's worried they're going to crash. We are at an all-time high. This is unsustainable. These prices are too high relative to earnings. 
And when the markets are tanking, everyone's terrified. I don't want to invest. Not while everything's dropping. And so if this podcast is going to be about risk and starting with knowable risks, we need to identify the difference between risk and volatility. The stock market goes up and to the right. Of course, past performance, no guarantee of future results. But two-thirds of market growth comes from dividends and inflation. You don't question whether a box of cornflakes is going to cost more money 20 years from now. You don't wonder if you're going to have to pay more for a McDonald's Happy Meal 15 years from now. You don't wonder if house prices generally at a broad level will be higher 30 years from now. Then why do we question whether the stock market will be higher 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now? Well, because it's extraordinarily unpredictable and volatile along the way as it goes up and to the right. The example I've heard Peter Malouk, the founder of Creative Planning, use before is one of walking his dog. He knows he's going to walk the dog and they'll go in a big loop around the neighborhood and they'll end up back at his house. But which tree the dog decides to pee on and where they're going to sniff. And if they're on one of those leashes that can, you know, extend, like which route they're going to take, very unpredictable. Are you going to run into another dog along the way? Maybe a mean dog? They start barking. Maybe your dog sees a Frisbee out there in the field. Oh, I love those Frisbees. Tries to chase after that until the extension finally stops and jerks them back, kind of chokes them. That's a little less predictable. But you figure, you know, at the end of the day, I'll end up getting my dog back to my house. That's the difference between risk and volatility. And one of the best ways to avoid risk is by not owning individual stocks. Picking stocks is an incredibly difficult exercise. Consider this information from Ben Carlson. The Russell 3000, which by the way, only has 2,700 stocks, kind of weird. As of last week, 800 of those 2,700 stocks were down 40% or more from their 52-week highs. One out of five of those 2,700 down more than 50% off their highs. The S&P 500 down about 5%. I mean, Carlson was lamenting, I can't pick stocks anymore because even when I try, this is what happens. He was bullish on the housing market looked at the biggest brand and name in housing, Zillow, bought the stock. It dropped 50% in part because of the iBuyer fiasco. He then says, well, this is Zillow. It's down 50%. What a great buying opportunity. Buys more and then it drops another 50%. So his thesis was correct. Homes are as hot as they've ever been. I mean, here in Gilbert, you get multiple offers day one. The problem is once you sell your house, you're competing with 20 other people to buy a house. And home prices are skyrocketing. People in our neighborhood thought we paid a lot for our home when we bought it. Of course, now, not that long afterward, everybody thinks we just stole this house. So if 85% of professional money managers that do this for a living, in some cases, managing billions of dollars, can't outperform the indexes that they're competing against, their benchmarks, why would we think we could? Extending the example, if you knew what was going to happen with the pandemic in 2019, you would most likely put all your money in cash. That would have been a terrible move. So again, the thesis can be correct. Good luck figuring out which stock to buy. I love the Bogle quote that says, why look for the needle in the haystack when you can buy the whole haystack? And so oftentimes we say, okay, John, I get it. I'm going to avoid those risks. Because remember, if you go broke at any point along the way, you're done. You can do everything right for 30 years. You make one mistake that derails you enough, it's over. Just like the Bank of America stock example. Built up almost a $5 million net worth. The mistake she had was large enough that it blew up all the rest of her lifetime of doing the right thing. But as I mentioned earlier, being a parent with kids, everything has risk. Well, John, that's why I bury it in the backyard, inflation risk. Well, John, that's just why I buy bonds, interest rate risk. That's why I buy CDs, liquidity risk, purchasing power risk. There are trade-offs to everything. 
You want to slow the spread of COVID and lock down people and lock down all the kids? Academic scores go down. Depression goes up. So to avoid one risk, the spread of a virus, you subjected people to a different risk. And that's why I don't like policy based upon one thing in a vacuum. Sure, I could minimize Aria's risk of falling from up high on the playground by never taking her to a park. I can make sure Jude never gets hit by a car by saying, you're staying in the house the rest of the day whenever you get home from school. These are extreme examples, but obviously most of us would look at that logically and say, that's a really bad idea. You're going to have to live with some risks. The trade-offs are too great. Investing is the exact same way. There's a very real risk when you take your assets out of things to avoid volatility that could potentially outpace inflation and put them somewhere where you will lose to inflation, but have a smoother ride. And this is seen in a recent Fidelity and Vanguard study on 20 million different 401ks. Those in their 60s are averaging over 70% allocated to stocks. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, it very much depends upon their situation. How much does that 401k represent of the total portfolio? When do they plan to retire? How much income will they need? Does that person want the check to the morgue to balance or do they want to leave a half a million bucks to each kid? All of these answers will dictate whether that's too high or too low. That's why personal finance is a lot more personal than finance. But a lot of folks are realizing I'm going to need to be okay with volatility while avoiding risks, but okay with volatility to have a little more stock exposure when bonds and cash and CDs are not outpacing inflation. And this is why I found this Y-chart study to be interesting. Regarding mutual funds and ETFs, there were nearly double the inflows into fixed income versus equities. So in one of the worst possible environments to invest in bonds, I mean, sure, it'll dampen your risk. And I'm not saying if you're near retirement or in retirement or need income, you shouldn't have any. But a 10-year treasury is losing 5% right now to inflation. And yet twice as much money flowed to those types of investments over stocks. It shows how risk averse we are overall as a country and the great sacrifices we will make to trade one risk for another, especially when that one risk is stock market volatility, which is one of the greatest fears of most investors. So we've talked about knowable risks and ways to look at that. We've talked about the trade-off of risks when attempting to avoid knowable risks. How about unknowable risks? The ones that you can't avoid. As a former airline pilot, and prior to that, a flight instructor, I have all kinds of stories around risk in an airplane. When I flight instructed student pilots, sometimes on their very first flight, these are people that do not have a private pilot license. And in fact, you're training them so that they can obtain that. I mean, we'd be coming in on short final in a Cessna 172, 25 yards off center line. The airplane's about to stall. And the whole time I'm over there pushing the yoke down, trying to nose it down. Hey, watch your airspeed. Look at where we are relative to center line. You know, and you're basically just assessing at what point does this become so dangerous that I have to take the controls? You know, when am I likely to die if I don't do something? But by far, the scariest moment I've ever had in an airplane was when I was an instrument instructor that would take private pilots, mostly who own their own plane, and provide an intensive eight to 12 hours a day, seven days a week training program, where when they left, they would have their instrument rating. Now, as I talked about in my second book, The Retirement Flight Plan, this is what happened to JFK Jr. Most private aviation crashes occur when non-instrument rated pilots find themselves in instrument conditions. Now there's protocol. You get in the clouds and you can't see the horizon. 
You're supposed to climb and you're supposed to circle. Basically do what you can to get out of the clouds. And the reason for that is there is a physical phenomenon called spatial disorientation. And if you're not good at scanning your instruments, in particular your six-pack, the primary gauges that tell you what's going on with the airplane, and you're used to just instead looking out at the horizon, you can get yourself in a very dangerous situation because when you're in clouds, it's the weirdest thing, but you'll be going up and to the right in the airplane and your body thinks you're going down and to the left. And that's why even private pilots with a lot of hours will get in what we call the soup and put themselves into a spin and not even realize it, just crash right into the ground. And so I still remember this guy's name. His name's Warren Brown. He was down in North Carolina. I flew commercially down to North Carolina, hopped into his airplane, and away we went. We were going to start the training, what's called under the hood, where he has sort of this goofy looking visor that stops you from being able to see the horizon. It's only slightly bigger than those really weird sunglasses that all of our grandparents had at some point once they stopped carrying and were in their 80s. You know, the ones that go all the way around their face. It's kind of like that. And it simulates that you're in bad weather. And we were going to start the training while we flew from North Carolina back to where I was living in central Minnesota and then complete the training partly in the simulator at the airport and in his airplane around Minnesota. And then he'd fly back on his own as an instrument rated pilot. Well, we're flying along at about 10,000 feet. We get above Red Wing, Wisconsin. All of a sudden, all of our navigation and all of our communication goes out. We're pretty sure to this day that it was a lightning strike because we were in some really bad weather. He didn't need to be under the hood at this point. We actually were in the clouds. And so we're doing the training. All of a sudden, boom, we've got nothing. I squawk 7,700, which tells air traffic control that we have a general emergency. We had been in the clouds for well over an hour. We knew that there was no way we were going to turn around or climb and get out of the clouds. So I go back to my private pilot days and I pull out my flight charts and I start looking around at where we are. And fortunately, we weren't in Colorado. You know, there's no Rocky Mountains, but there were some cell towers and some taller intermittent obstacles that went up 800 feet. 1,000 feet, 1,200 feet, 500 feet. And so we had to evaluate this risk that was unknown to us. He had maintained his airplane well. This was a freak thing. You can't forecast it. Can you forecast two airplanes flying into the Twin Towers when it comes to your money and the markets? Can you forecast the financial crisis? A couple people did. I mean, Steve Carell played one of them in the big short. Can you forecast a global pandemic before it happens? So now what do you do when an unknowable risk occurs, well, you have to adapt. And in this case, it really was the saying, adapt or die. I looked at where we were on the flight chart. I felt pretty good that we were not going to hit a tower. I know that sounds wild and crazy, but those were our options. So we headed in a direction where I felt like we could get down below the clouds. Now we didn't know how thick the cloud cover was. We slowly circled down the whole time, just going, well, I hope we don't just fly right into a cell tower. Warren was a Christian. He's sitting there praying the whole time, protect us, protect us. I'm flying the airplane. We pop out about six to 800 feet above the ground. And right in front of us is the one runway for the Red Wing Airport. Now we got really lucky with that. The downside was we had about a 35 mile an hour crosswind at 90 degrees from the one runway. Warren's like, I'm not landing this thing. You put it down. And so I landed. And as we landed, the fire trucks there and the police car and, you know, half of the Red Wing population, which is like six people, they make the shoes there, by the way, if you're wondering. And we stayed in a little motel that you have to, you know, your doors from the outside, you park in front of your room in Red Wing for a few days while his airplane was fixed. And then we went on to Minnesota. And so regardless of what you do to avoid risks, things are going to come up with your money and in life that you simply could not have known. This is what separates great investors from good investors, from okay investors, from bad investors, 
from terrible investors. How proactively do you pivot and identify the new course, the new strategy, the new way to a safe landing? Because over your lifetime of investing, that will determine how successful you are from a wealth management standpoint. And I know I'm a little late to the party with the Bible verse of the day, but it's coming from 1 Timothy 6:11, And it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul mentions often in the New Testament to flee from temptation. Put another way, to flee from risks. I mean, if you're married and you value your relationship, probably not a good idea to go have cocktails with a really good looking coworker who's going through a messy divorce. I mean, to talk about, you know, some business stuff over happy hour. Is there anything overtly wrong about that? No, but it's an unnecessary risk. Why would you do that? I mean, I remember a youth pastor at church. We'd say, well, you know, what's okay to do when you're dating? You know, can you make out? Can you just peck? Like what's right and what's wrong? You know, we're just hormone crazed teenagers. And our youth pastor used this example of saying, think of it like a cliff. I mean, if you know you fall off the cliff, you're dead. Are you going to go right up to the edge with a blindfold on and walk tippy toe around the edge of the cliff? Like you've got a lot better shot at falling than just staying a little further away. And Brian Abbey, if you're listening, that was a great analogy. I have never forgotten it. I used it with Beck and Shay, our teenagers. You know, so those are avoidable risks. If you're Joseph, when it comes to Potiphar's wife and you had no idea that she was going to make that move on you, you leave your robe in her arms and you flee. You get the heck out of Dodge. All right, enough about risk. Let's talk taxes as I conclude today's podcast. So our national debt just went to $30 trillion. CNN Business cited that our spending and our debt have increased since the end of 2019 by $7 trillion. Think about that for a moment. Since the end of 2019, $7 trillion. And here's what we do as a country. We basically get a 0% credit card and use that to pay off other balances. So short-term debt comes due and we just pay it off with longer-term debt. You know, you borrow money from one family member, that debt's coming due. You go to a different family member and you say, hey, can I borrow money from you and I'll pay you back in five years? You get that check and you go right to the family member you owe the payment to and you say, here's your money. When you think of it practically and in terms of what you would do in your own life, in your own household, it seems pretty ridiculous, right? CNN said $5 trillion more dollars will be added to the national debt over the next 10 years, just at our current interest rate, and will amount to half of all federal revenue by the year 2051. You did not mishear this. Our debt service over the next 30 years will eat up half of all federal revenue at our current rate. Now, the problem is you and I both know that's actually an optimistic assessment because that would assume that we stop spending money like a teenager who's got his parents' credit cards, which doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon with the proposals that are out there. And so we've got one of two ways to pull out of this. The first is we get responsible, we reduce the budget, we lower our spending, eh, that ain't happening, or we raise taxes. Ding, 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 ding. That is what's happening. There have already been countless proposals to raise taxes because we have such a divided Congress they haven't been able to get anything through. But to remain solvent, we're going to have to raise taxes. And this should inform your decisions around your tax strategies when it comes to your financial plan. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, John, really? I mean, is it that bad? Do you really think taxes are going to increase? 
let me provide you some more information. If you look at debt to GDP by country, Italy's at 133% debt relative to GDP. Greece, 174%. Now, we don't look at those two countries and think anything but, yeah, but that's not America. It's Italy and Greece. Hopefully, we're in a better position than them. Barely, but the U.S. is not far behind. In 1994, our debt to GDP ratio was 63%. Not bad. We had $4.5 trillion of public debt in 1994. Not even $5 trillion. In 2008, it doubled to $9.2 trillion by the time George W. left office. Now, this is pretty bipartisan. He spent a lot of money. Trump spent a lot of money. But so if you go back and look at this, in 2001, when George W. took office, we had $5.7 trillion of public debt. In 2009, when Barack Obama was president, we were at $10.6 trillion. And the ratio, which is important, relative to GDP, was 74%. So pretty high, but not crazy. Up from 63% in 94 to 74% 15 years later. But when President Obama left office, and hey, I read the guy's biography and it was really good, and he's a dynamic politician, and I think he means well, but he added a ton to our national debt. When he left in 2016, our national debt was at $19 trillion, 18.9 to be exact. So it doubled while he was in office for eight years. And here's the more important part. Our national debt relative to GDP increased from 74% to 102%. I mean, today our ratio is approaching Greece levels. We went from 24 trillion in 2020 to right now at 30 trillion. By the end of the year, it'll be 32 to $33 trillion by most estimates. If you're wondering, our GDP is enormous. We are the 800 pound gorilla. We are a woolly mammoth. $20 trillion a year. But with our national debt, we'll be at 150% debt to GDP ratio. I mean, we're Lebanon. We're Greece. And I'm not telling you that to say, everything's collapsing. Go buy gold bars. Put everything in crypto. But if you don't have a forward-thinking tax plan, if you're not recognizing and strategizing that right now we're in the lowest tax environment you're ever going to see for the rest of your life and I'm ever going to see for the rest of my life, then you're missing a huge opportunity. Talk to your CPA, talk to an advisor. Maybe they are a CPA or they're practiced like us at Keystone where we integrate our CFPs and our CPAs and our attorneys. But this needs to be a central part of your strategy moving forward. And so as I conclude today's podcast, I'd like to encourage Andy Reid, consider the knowable risks with five seconds left. Don't allow your quarterback to throw a backward swing pass rather than taking the points. And if you found this podcast helpful, please leave us a review on iTunes or share it on social media. It helps us get discovered and in turn help more people before acting upon anything discussed today. Speak with a financial advisor near you. Of course, if you'd like our help, you can visit us anytime at keystonewealthpartners.com to request a complimentary retirement map review. And remember, we are the wealthiest society in the history of planet Earth. Let's make our money matter. John is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisor that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. All opinions expressed by John or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Keystone Wealth Partners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Keystone Wealth Partners may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.